Welcome to AM Best Audio. We have to be cognizant of um, and, uh, and try to filter out uh, biases that, that are reflected in that historical data. There, there can be blind trust in the technology. There is a role for it. Um, there is a good role and a bad role for it. We're going to regulate this space very aggressively and we are going to set the rules of the road and, and we're going to get this done in a very short timeline. How is AI changing risk selection, marketing, and policyholder relations? I'm Lori Chortis. We will answer that question in part three of the AMBEST TV special presentation, what the AI revolution means for insurers, insureds, and the insurance workforce. We previously examined how AI is changing insurance organizations and operations, and how insurance professionals are going to reshape their careers and skills. But it's also likely to change the way that insurers identify risk opportunities, develop products, and unfortunately, expose themselves to new risk. We'll explore those possibilities and more in what the AI revolution means for insurance prospects, policyholders, and regulators. How much do you think insurance products will change as a result of AI? Completely, uh, to the point where we probably won't even recognize them as insurance products anymore because they'll be much more involved in the activity of risk transfer as your risk changes. AI and the experience around the insurance product will help you inform your decisioning about the risks you want to take, whether it's you know, simple things on directions or it's more you know, larger risks around you know, capital management for a book of business in the billions of dollars. There's been talk about insurers setting rates based on individuals' high-risk behaviors gleaned from their social media via AI. What are your views on that practice? Well, I mean, I'm a little bit split on it, right? Because there, there is some responsibility on the consumers to be truthful with their, you know, their with their risk appetite, effectively. So, the the easiest example is if if I want to go get a life insurance policy and I'm in a high risk industry, if I'm a, a deep sea diver, or if I, if I often go skydiving, or if I do a number of myriad uh, different dangerous activities and I tell my insurance company that, no, you know what? I'm a, you know, I'm an accountant. I sit at a desk all day and I, I'm a pretty healthy guy and, and everything's normal over here. And they're able to go see me on, 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 again, on Facebook or whatever. And I'm jumping out of planes. I'm, you know, doing, doing whatever dangerous activity you want to think of. You know, I, I think there is some there is some reasonability to have the insurance industry look at that and say, "Hey, this isn't the true risk that we were presented with," and now we've got to, we've got to be able to uh, account for that. And, and there's got to be some reasonable expectation of honesty between these these contracts, right? And so, so that's the the forefront. I think the probably the leading edge is the, the leading discussion is probably more on those privacy concerns, right? And 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 I don't think I think as long as our consumers understand what data is being used in their analysis or how they're, how they're potentially being uh, rated or looked at. I think that that could be fair game, but at this point, I don't think they're there yet. And so the, it comes down to disclosing what information is being used, how you're getting it. And, and that's a real push and pull with the industry right now and having that discussion of what should be disclosed, uh, what data is acceptable, what's not acceptable. And also, frankly, a lot of these companies are using a third party vendor to pull that data, a data analytics vendor and so the companies may not know where that data is coming from, which is another dangerous piece, I think, in my mind, is if you don't know where it's coming from, there's potential there for either bad data sets or, or potential issues that come down the road. And, and 
And again, I think the best thing we can do is having those honest disclosures with our consumers so they know what they're getting into and, and they know what to expect. Do we have to worry about it making ethical decisions? You're assuming that the AI is making a decision, um, and, and it's really not. Um, what the AI is doing is making a, uh, in this context, making a prediction based on the inputs it's received. So it, it's no different than what we have now. Are we worried about uh, a, an underwriter um, making a biased decision uh, based on the inputs uh, he's, he's given, or a claims manager making a biased decision based on the inputs that she's given? Um, AI, uh, to the extent it's machine learning trained on historical data, reflects that historical data. And so I think we have to be cognizant of um, and, uh, and try to filter out uh, biases that, that are reflected in that historical data. Yeah, I'd just, just like to add again, it's just an additional data point for the underwriter, the actuaries, just to, to make their decisions. The question is, who controls that data? And are there biases within that data? So this is an area I do believe we need to be um, careful about, uh, considerate of. Uh, what are we doing with the data and is it appropriate? Uh, it, we have to be very intentional. Um, and I think everyone's agreeing. We're, there, there, there can't be blind trust in the technology. It is a tool that we need to determine how to use it appropriately. NLP or natural language processing, that's another form of artificial intelligence. And it really can be extremely beneficial to carriers and MGAs when it comes to things like detecting and, and preventing fraud. Um, one example of this is there's a process known as sentiment analysis. And with sentiment analysis, basically an NLP algorithm will analyze text and speech data, looking for patterns and anomalies, basically to build a behavioral profile of claimant. Um, another example is something called network analysis. With network analysis, an NLP algorithm basically scans and analyzes data that's found in social media networks and other online sources. And what it does there then is it can look for connections between claimants and other parties that you know could be potential indicators to be a red flag for collusion. What opportunities will those technologies and other new technologies that we might see coming soon provide to the markets? Well. I think in terms of that, so I think back to the software we're putting in our Omni um, Channel Contact Center. When we look at that, and I'm not saying this is totally new stuff, but there's an, there are various artificial intelligence components. One of them is around sentiment analysis. So a customer or a member calls up and the rep's working with that member and the call is going to go south. And the, the software picks up the tone of the member. What that then does is the software, through learning over time, then will ultimately put a pop-up on the rep's screen and say, you know, something like, you need to change the direction of this call here. Or a pop-up can show at a supervisor's screen. So at the end of the day, this what, what I don't want to call it little, but this little piece, small piece of software or artificial intelligence can do is make for a much better member experience and make it easier on the member, our employee, and the, make it better for the company as a whole. Insurers believe artificial intelligence will help identify new customers and develop new products. 
potential challenges or risks does AI pose, and what can those in the industry do to alleviate or mitigate those challenges? Well, I think the, the primary challenge that we're talking about is the potential for bias uh, and, and the perceived bias that, that, that could exist. Now, again, these are tools that are developed by humans. Humans, by their very nature, have our, we all have our own biases. We all have our own issues and, and kind of, you know, our, our, our viewpoint on the world is developed by our, our past and our history and all those different things. And, and we bring an inherent bias to everything that we do necessarily. And, and it's really interesting in the insurance industry. We're all about, you know, insurance is about at the fundamental core, it's discrimination, but it's not unfair discrimination. Right. And so it's a really kind of unique thread that we've got a, we've got a thread or Neil, we've got a thread with this industry and how do we make decisions? How do we write risks? How do you make judgments on, on what, what risks you're willing to take as an industry and what you're not? And you've got to be able to have that risk profile and be able to look at and analyze these things. So I, I think the biggest problem right now or the biggest concern is, is the, the threat of bias and the threat of, um, you know, an unfair algorithm leading to impacts, negative impacts on, on, on either wholesale communities or wholesale books of business. And, and that's a real perceive, that's a real issue that we're, we're trying to root out. And I think it's, it's going to take time to develop a, probably a good process to look at that. But the biggest thing that we can do right now is have a good governance structure on how do we deploy these tools. So if an, if a company is going to use an artificial intelligence tool or machine learning tool, uh, understanding what, what the expected outcome is, is, is important understanding where you're deploying it and how you're using it and what what potential for risks there are and also being able to continually audit that and, and look at that and say okay is this becoming is this giving us what we expected you know is there is there anything that's an outlier that we need to look at uh, so it's that governance structure that's really really important but I, again I think at the end of the day the goal with all this is is to eventually have um, you know the, the goal of machine learning and these tools is to get to a truly unbiased viewpoint, right? I mean, if we can, if we can remove the human from those, dis those discussions, you're, you have the opportunity or the potential to remove that bias. Now that's through machine learning process. And so that, again, it goes back to the, the fundamental algorithm, the fundamental piece that was built, that was built by the human. You've got to be able to weed that bias out. And how do we do that? That's for people smarter than me to figure out. Um, but I think that's, that's the ultimate goal. When we come back, there is a role for it. Um, there is a good role and a bad role for it. I'll, I'll mention the bad role. And later? We're going to regulate this space very aggressively and we are going to set the rules of the road and, and we're going to get this done in a very short timeline. Welcome back to what the AI revolution means for insurance prospects, policyholders, and regulators. Pundits used to predict, incorrectly, that the insurance industry will leave agents behind. But what about agents who leave insurance behind? How should AI be used to enhance, enforce policy management for the life and annuity sector? It's a great question. Um, our company focuses primarily on life and annuity. And one of the things we noticed is people buy policies from agents. Now, because of the turnover in the industry, agents live after two or three years. But you expect the customer to stick around for 20 or 30 years. And you find yourself in a situation where the consumer owns a, pro a product that they don't understand. The insurance company was never built for services, and the agent is gone. So from a consumer perspective, you're going to find yourself buying more and more policies from other carriers. From a carrier perspective, the difference between having an agent or not having an agent is going to be dramatic in the lifetime value of the customer. Using AI and automation, you could 
create this customer engagement that drives higher lifetime value over time, provides better service, creates the retention, upsell, and cross-sell opportunities where the customer benefits from having a better product and insurance company benefits from having a higher lifetime value from their existing customers. Regulators have kept a cautious eye on AI. The scrutiny started with algorithms that moved into closer examinations of possible opportunities for built-in bias. How should the regulators be looking at AI or how are they looking at it? So looking at it in a very uh, you know broad sort of considerations, both in how they're using it themselves, and we went through a great uh, when I was at AIS, we went through a great example with the Department of Connecticut or Department of Insurance in Connecticut, uh, who's using AI and natural language processing to dramatically speed uh, their filings um, in their commercial policies. You know, going from you know hours to from uh, weeks and months of uh, filing time. But then there's actually the uh, the concerns that regulators have about AI use in insurance products and further in the markets that insurance products are trying to serve. And that's the challenge that we're really facing, is how to hold those AI models accountable to the purposes that they're trying to do in the risk transfer context. Just like we would trust a human being and their education, experience, and decisioning and underwriting or in a business operations, we need to put that same framework around a much more real-time mechanism to hold a learning machine accountable to the decisions and changing decisions it might make over time. AI tools actually have this very well-documented tendency to provide plausible-sounding answers that are factually incorrect or so incomplete as to be misleading, and this is actually called hallucination. They're actually hallucinating. I think that's a technical term. Um, so for example, you know, AI might generate a description of a product that has non-existent features or provide product instructions that are dangerous when implemented. Uh, and then there are uh, data and privacy and security concerns, right, which are particularly important for insurance sector because you know, we, we handle very sensitive consumer data and the use of generative AI raises additional concerns regarding you know, the moral use and, and protection of data, which, which may serve as a barrier to adoption. As you know, um, our company Travelers has a very measured approach um, in, in the manner we approach data governance model governance, responsible business practices. Uh, we have a model risk management framework. Uh, we, we have also published our responsible AI framework for the world to see um, on our sustainability side. Uh, that has four overarching principles of people-centric, fair, uh, responsible, and trustworthy. So we're approaching these new tools with that lens uh, and focus. Is AI part of the equation when it comes to securitizing risk or securitizing risk more efficiently and effectively? Uh, there is a role for it. Um, a, there is a good role and a bad role for it. Um, the, I'll, I mentioned the bad role because I, I already alluded to it earlier. If you set up a shop and say that you're using AI to model risk, that doesn't provide transparency. And and anybody who says they're using AI, you know, everybody claims that they're using AI, but really there's very few true AI um, uh, applications here. So that's not a good thing um, to, to use AI um, as a crutch for uh, modeling risk. However, a lot of what happens in the market, uh, in the insurance and reinsurance market is people pouring through uh, policies, wording, people pouring through underwriting guidelines, um, through claims files, um, 
all of that lends itself to some responsible use of AI that is sort of the, not out, like outsourced AI, but uh, when I say responsible use, meaning an expert who uses AI alongside their own expertise to get things done faster um, and, and to um, do it in a, in a more reliable manner. There, I think there's a lot of potential and, and we are uh, very much um, exploring those applications and we see some promises there. And so, um, you know, helping an investor digest lots of documents in a, in a concise way um, is, is a good use of large language models, for example. How are you able to put structures or guardrails on this technology? Short answer is enterprise blockchain. Um, using uh, immutable records of, of blockchain allows the uh, mechanisms, be, them, be they traditional sorts of risk and cap models, to modern uh, AI solutions, holding them accountable to the purposes, intents, and the tests that you would have them run as it learns and as the contexts of its decision-making change. When you want to build this trust, it's going to come down to the explainability of these tools. And I'll go back to the NAIC uh, AI principles that we passed two, well, God, it's probably been four years ago now. Uh, the pandemic kind of pauses time for me a little bit, so it's, it's uh, but it's been a while. Um, but we've had those principles on uh, passed by the, by the membership. And again, a lot of that talks about being accountable, being uh, transparent, um, and, and being able to be uh, explainability to the consumer, right? And being able to say, okay, here's what we're doing, here's how we're using it, here's the data source that's coming in. And yes, we've got a complex calculation that's going behind it, but we know the inputs and we know the outputs. And so what happens necessarily in that black box, we're probably we're not gonna be able to understand every algorithm that existed in the, in the history of time, but we're going to, again, focus on the inputs, focus on the outputs and be able to figure that out. And, and the more we can explain that and have that, that uh, transparency to our consumers, I think that again, instantly helps build some trust. Again, and then when you look at the data sets that you're testing or you're running, again, making sure that those are a diverse data set too. So you're not getting instantly biased outcomes based on, you know, we, we ran a population of 500,000 people, but we didn't include a, 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 a an ethnic group or we didn't include a, a different, a different uh, minority population within that. Those type of issues are going to lead to instant criticism and probably instant distrust of that algorithm. And it's also going to come down to there's going to be a significant um, res responsibility on the industry to continually monitor these things. And so these tools, again, part of the one of the great benefits is they continue to evolve and learn over time. But that's also probably a significant responsibility on that on the industry to know that once you deploy the tool, you can't just say, well, we deployed the tool. We're good to go. We're going to use it now. This is a constant monitoring piece that you're going to have to continually checking those outcomes and monitoring for accuracy for, uh, you know, the expected outcomes. Um, and so it's going to be that accountability piece that's going to be really important. And again, all those pieces go back into developing that trust within the, not only the industry, but within the consumers is if you can show you've got a diverse, you've had diverse testing, you've got, it's transparent, you can explain it. You're able to do show the regular monitoring of it. You're able to show that, hey, we're, we're constantly checking our compliance. We're in compliance with the laws, uh, the ethical guidelines that are being being established out there. And again, it's I think there's also there's always going to be responsibility for some human oversight of these pieces. Right. Right now, we're at the point where it, it can flag things and say, hey, you should go check out this, check out this population, check out this subset of your data, make sure that it's accurate or make sure that we're seeing a trend here that maybe you want to look at. 
that is to me that's going to constantly exist where there's always going to be some human oversight where there, there there will be some monitoring of this by a human to say okay this is operating how we expected it to and and, and nothing is nothing is kind of outside the norm there and you do those things i think that'll go a long way into um, again maintaining and building that trust not only with the regulated body with the consumers but also within the industry and so it's it's going to be an uphill battle coming up we're going to regulate this space very aggressively and we are going to set the rules of the road and and we're going to get this done in a very short timeline as ai technology continues to emerge and become more integrated across the insurance industry insurers and regulators alike are asking the question where do regulators fit into the equation probably play a pretty critical role. I think I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a story. To me, this has been a spectrum, right? Where we've been on a spectrum of understanding of technology. And uh, the first general response from a regulator is when they learn about AI, or they learn about, you know, you go back to even autonomous vehicles or, or anything, any new technology, like, okay, we've got to, we've got to write a model off or we've got to write a model reg. We've got to upend the industry and we've got to figure this out and we've got to get down. And I want to know every calculation that exists within this, this algorithm. And then they start continuing down this road of learning about this and it gets, okay, this is becoming more and more challenging because every algorithm is different. Every company uses something a little bit different. And so the ability for me to understand that at that granular level is, is not possible. I also can't afford to probably hire the, the team of data scientists it would take to be able to do that. And so, so I, I think you're seeing that initial response of we're going to regulate this space very aggressively and we are going to set the rules of the road and, and we're going to get this done in a very short timeline moving to we got to look at a regulatory framework uh, we got to look at maybe a principles-based governance-based discussion on this and again going back to recognizing what i said earlier is that we have an existing regulatory framework that's in place um, we have the unfair trade practices act we had we have 150 years of, of state-based insurance regulation behind us to look at and to glean from and and to learn from and again, this is ultimately what this comes down. This is another tool in the toolbox for insurance industry to use. And we'll have to tweak some things. Sure, we'll have to maybe modify some things, and but that we're always in evolution. But the need for a wholesale change or a wholesale change to the regulatory framework, I just don't think is there because we have that existing framework. So it's it's going to be you know addressing some of the things on the edges. So the data privacy, which you know is an important piece. It's not addressing artificial intelligence directly, but it's addressing the data that's going into it. And so that's, you know, we're going to, we're going to look at that as regulators. We're also going to be looking at how do you mitigate that bias? How do you, how do you ensure fairness in these processes? And that's, that's a governance question. That's more of a that kind of over the overarching over everything. I think it, it can fit into our regulatory framework. You know, how do we continue to make sure that consumers are protected from this and how do we make sure that, that, they, that they're getting fair outcomes? Um, and then it coming coming down to the monitoring that I talked about, and then just ensuring that we are we are operating in a collaborative space. I think that's going to be really really critical within the industry and the regulators. There's always going to be a push and pull between the regulated industry and the regulators, and that's that's a natural tension which should be there. But again, we've got to we've got to build a scenario, build a situation or, or a space where the industry can come forward and say, "Hey, we've used this tool. Uh, we got some really bad outcomes." Um, we mitigated it. We, we, you know, we, we redressed, we redressed the issues and we've got made our consumers whole, 
but we had some issues and to where they're able to, the industry is able to come forward and have those discussions with us without the fear of a heavy regulatory hammer coming down on them. Because we need to know that as regulators, we need to be able to have some visibility to what the issues are and how they're being solved. Uh, and, and if we don't have a space where that, that industry can trust us to have that conversation, operating in silence, operating in, in, a, in, you know, in the dark is, is generally more dangerous. So that's going to be a unique pace, space for us to be because generally we haven't, we haven't had that. I mean, or we've had some of that, but not probably the level we need it to be. So I, I think that's where we're going to play uh, some really important roles and is, is having that collaborative nature between the industry and the regulators to best understand this technology as quickly as we can because it's coming whether we like it or not. And so that's going to be a little bit of a tweak. And then again, focusing on how do we how do we ensure proper governance? How do we monitor this? How do we ensure compliance with what you say you're with what the industry says it's going to be doing? And, and again, it's it's how do we mitigate the bias? How do we address those data privacy concerns? So there's a lot of spots for the regulators to play, and it doesn't necessarily mean we are going to be sitting in um, sitting in the algorithms with the companies. It's it's going to be on the outside, it's kind of looking at how do we how do we ensure that this is being handled properly. I understand the NAIC's Innovation, Cybersecurity, and Technology Committee is drafting a principles-based model bulletin on AI and machine learning governance. Can you tell us a little bit more about the draft model and what it will mean for the industry? Sure. I, I, well, and again, I think it's it's kind of the next step of artificial intelligence principles. So it's, it's kind of building off of what we've already got. And again, it's going to focus heavily on the governance structure within within the companies and, and making sure that what governances do you what governance procedures do you have in place to ensure that there's monitoring to ensure that there's been a you know a, a bias detection or, or or some kind of oversight to ensure that this is a fair algorithm, and so it's really going to be how do we as regulators what are we going to be looking for when we go in and do an exam or look at look at how you're using these tools? I, I don't think they're going to be overly prescriptive. Um, we're st these these are still in process, and so we're still working through it. But I I think we've gone from the prescriptive the prescriptive uh, methodology of trying to again get into that each algorithm versus again giving some of the high level principles which you can see they exist within our AI principles so this is going to be the next step on to okay with these AI principles how do you ensure compliance with these AI principles at a governance level how are you making sure that you know the c-suite understands what's being used and what's being deployed are the expect are the outcomes what you expected if not what are you doing about it and how do you notify either the regulator the consumer or whatnot if you how are you using these to ensure that, again, we're able to fix these problems uh, before they get too broad. So I think that's where you're going to see this model bulletin and model kind of governance document move forward. It's been an interesting an interesting process. Um, we have had, a, again, you, we've gone, I've seen a number of states go from, we need a model law to now we need a model bulletin to me, we need some governance, governance oversight, which is, I think is a really positive step for this process. And it gives, it should give the industry some comfort that, we're operating in a space that that is still evolving. It's still it's changing moment by moment, and and we've got to have a regulatory framework that it recognizes that. And so, looking at a principles based kind of here are the fence posts that you can operate within. Here is the kind of the playground that we want you to operate within, but we're not going to be prescriptive on how you do it and what what this looks like. But we're going to have some expectations that there is some monitoring, there's some there's compliance, and there's a there's an inherent fairness there to how you're operating. ChatGPT is restricted. It doesn't let you do obvious nefarious things. And, and obviously that, that's going to continue to get better over time. But my concern is that 
uh, these large language models, as they're called, are the cost to create one is going to get much cheaper over time, like everything else in technology. So it's reasonable to assume that the hacking groups are going to have unrestricted versions of this technology in the near future. And they can use that to kind of automate a lot of their workflow, right? Just like any other business. And so that's going to be a big challenge that we're going to have to deal with. And the, the broader cybersecurity uh, like community is going to have to deal with. So, you know, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. We hope that we can use the same technology to combat this effectively. But it's all, we're all in the wild, wild west here. At the end of the day, artificial intelligence is really just another tool. Um, you know, we've been through these re, these evolutions before as an industry. Um, you know, you went through the computer revolution, I'm, you know, when we had the, when all of a sudden we could use Excel spreadsheets and could stop using hand ledgers. You know, there's, there's we have experience in this piece. And this is really just another tool that we'll be able to use. And we've got the structure, I believe, within the insurance uh, regulatory framework to adapt to another tool. And so it's, you know, it's taking me, it's taken me a number of years to get to the point where, um, you know, I, I, maybe we don't need a wholesale new change or new, new model laws, new model regulations or, or things in that space that we can fit this underneath our existing framework of the Unfair Trade Practices Act of the other, of the other insurance regulations that we already have on the books. It's just, this is a new way to apply the service, the same service that we've applied for well over 150 years in this industry. The three things that this, all the safety experts said that we shouldn't do is connect it to the internet, teach it to code and study human psychology. And we've done all three. So um, clearly we've got to be careful here, but um, I think ultimately it's, uh, it, it's, an exciting, it's an exciting time. Thank you for joining us for part three of this AMBEST TV special presentation, what the AI revolution means for insurance prospects, policyholders, and regulators. Be sure to watch the fourth and final episode, what the AI revolution means for insurers, insureds, and the insurance workforce. This has been a special presentation of AMBEST TV. I'm Lori Chortis. Looking to get the attention of the insurance industry? We have the platforms to do just that. Whether it be AM Best TV, AM Best Audio, Best Review Magazine, or Best Day. Find out more by contacting our Advertising Services Business Development Team at 908-882-1706.